All right, good afternoon. Welcome to the noon service here at Connect. Good to see you. You know, why don't we just dive right into the text today? Because actually, I think this story that we're going to read from the scripture is so interesting and it's so good. I don't even have to warm you up with a clever introduction, okay? Let's just go straight to Matthew chapter number 11 and read six verses. Verses one to six, Matthew chapter number 11. This is what we find in the scripture. When Jesus had finished giving his instructions to the 12 disciples, He left them and he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. The good news is being preached to the poor. Then he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Father, I'm praying that you would bless the reading of your word today, illuminate your truth in our hearts, and God, if there's anything that we need to change in our lives as a result of your truth, God, just help us to be obedient. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we wrap up this series kind of on doubt and deconstruction, I want to spend some time looking at this very short but very powerful interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. There's so much goodness inside of this very short section of scripture that uh, we couldn't really talk about the subject of deconstructing or being tempted to tear down your faith and walk away from it all without looking at this particular episode. In fact, I think there's so much goodness in this short section of scripture that if I only had one passage of scripture to share with somebody who was in a stage of disillusionment with their faith, somebody who was considering just throwing it all to the side, walking away and pursuing something new with their life. This might be the passage that I pull out and read. The reason I like it is because it's equal parts encouragement and challenge. It provides a lot of helpful answers to some of the questions that we might be wrestling with when we go through one of these seasons. And it raises all sorts of new questions that I think are interesting and helpful even in their own right. It's an incredible example of what it looks like to question your faith without losing your faith, to be able to be honest and sincere with what you're feeling and what you're experiencing, and yet to come through the other side more confident than ever that God is with you, he's for you, and his plans remain good. So this story begins with a guy named John the Baptist sitting in a prison cell. Before we talk about why he's in prison, like, let's ask the question, who is this John the Baptist guy anyway? And why is he called John the Baptist, by the way? Why not John the Catholic or John the Methodist or something like that? Who is this guy that is so central to this particular uh, story? Well, if we read in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, first couple of chapters of each, we learn John the Baptist's origin story, his backstory. We get to fill in a lot of the details about who this guy was. So for example, we read in these early sections of Matthew's gospel and Luke's that uh, John the Baptist rather was Jesus' first cousin. So Jesus' mother was named Mary. John's mother was named Elizabeth. Mary and Elizabeth were sisters. You follow? So they were first cousins. They were closely related to one another. 
We read in the book of Luke that both of their births were foretold by an angelic announcement. Like we're all familiar with uh, Luke chapter number two and the angel showing up to Mary and saying, you know, you're blessed and highly favored among women and you're going to give birth to a son and his name's going to be Jesus and all these different things. We're used to the angels and their uh, announcement about the birth of Jesus, but the exact same thing happens for the birth of John the Baptist six months earlier. An angel appears to Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah and tells them, you're going to have a son and your son is going to be a mighty prophet of God. He's going to be a very, very special young man. We also learn during this angelic announcement that each of these guys, John the Baptist and Jesus, they both have a very unique and specific calling on their lives. So of course, Jesus is going to be the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. John is going to be the, uh, the one who goes before the Messiah to prepare his way. He's specifically, uh, Zechariah is specifically told that your son is going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. They were born six months apart from each other. So they're really close in age. Although they didn't grow up in the same hometown in the country of Israel, they grew up relatively close to each other. And there's no doubt that they would have spent significant time around each other when they were children. Like, playing desert hockey or whatever it was they did in Palestine 2,000 years ago. I mean, they weren't playing ice hockey, that's for sure. Whatever it was that they were doing, they did it. They were cousins. They saw each other at festivals. They saw each other at family gatherings. John the Baptist and Jesus would have known each other very, very well from a young age. Now, as they grew up, John entered into his ministry first. He became a very well-known prophet in uh, ancient Israel. He would challenge people to repent of their sins and to get ready for the coming Messiah. The word repent means to change your mind, change your behavior, change yourself so that you are more ready for God and what he wants to do. And so John would preach to people. He'd say, you need to repent. The Messiah is here or he's coming. The time is close. We need to get ourselves ready for his, uh, for his arrival. We learn a lot of interesting facts about John. One is he was a weird dude. <laughs> If you haven't read about John, you should read about John because he's a funny guy. One of the things we're told about John the Baptist is that he wore clothing made out of camel's hair, camel's hair clothing. Now, I am not much of a fashionista, despite what this shirt might lead you to believe, okay? In my mind, camel's hair clothing sounds swanky, sounds bougie and nice. This is like you would go to Chanel and you would buy a purse that's made out of camel's hair and it would cost you a mortgage payment and you'd be like, look at this fancy camel's hair bag that I'm carrying around. But in the first century, camel's hair was the lowest of the low. It was the cheapest of the cheap. Nobody would see, be seen in public wearing this sort of stuff. It was like old fashioned clothing. It was uncomfortable clothing. And so the very fact that John wore this unique clothing caused him to stand out. He stood out for other reasons. Uh, the Bible tells us he didn't live in society. He didn't live in a village or in a town or a city. Instead, he lived out in the woods, in the wilderness near the Jordan River. That's where he stayed basically full time. His diet was really weird. The Bible says that he subsisted on a diet of locusts and wild honey. Like the man ate grasshoppers for his dinner, okay? Strange dude. And all of this is intentional. You have to understand that. John did each and every one of these things because he is trying to separate himself from the society at large. He's dressing differently than they are. He's living differently than they are. He's eating differently than they are. And all of this fits very perfectly with the message, hey, you guys need to change. You need to give up on the habits and patterns and ways of life that have caused you to drift from God 
because he's about to do something new and something unexpected here in our world. And you've got to be ready for it. John was an interesting guy. He was also very popular. People love John the Baptist, mostly because he was a weirdo. So why wouldn't you want to go listen to this weirdo and see him for yourself? You know, so people would travel from all over the Judean countryside. They would go to the Jordan River and they would watch Jordan and listen, uh, watch John and listen to him preach. And John would be baptizing people. By the way, this is why he's called John the Baptist. The, the real translation is like John the Baptizer, the one who does the baptizing. And so he was very, very well known and very famous. He was key to Jesus early ministry. We read in Matthew chapter number three that one day, uh, John has already been doing his ministry for quite a long time. Jesus wanders out to the Jordan River and finds his cousin, John, baptizing people in the river. And he says, John, I'm next. Dibs, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, no, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. I'm not worthy to untie your shoes. If anybody's going to baptize anybody today, you're going to baptize me. You're the Messiah. I'm not about to baptize the Messiah. Jesus is like, listen, if I'm the Messiah, would you do what I ask you to do, please? Okay, I need you to baptize me. This is part of God's plan. And so John relents. He baptizes Jesus there in the Jordan River. Matthew chapter number three, verse 16, we're told that when Jesus comes up out of the water, there's a voice from heaven. It's the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Everybody, including John the Baptist, hears this. The Bible says the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And in that moment, John the Baptist makes a great proclamation. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was really key and critical in Jesus' early ministry, but John had a knack for getting himself in trouble. Um, he had a knack for getting himself in trouble because of the things that he said. So I told you he liked to call out people's sin, tell them to repent, change their ways. But he didn't just like talk broadly and talk generally to like, um, you know, peasants in Israel and things like that. No, no, no. He liked to call out the leadership of the country for their sin. And so uh, he, had a, he had an issue with the governor of the province that they lived in. The guy's name was Herod. And he had a problem with Herod because Herod had illegally married his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. Herod, Herod had married his sister-in-law and it was a scandal. There was a lot of like dirty stuff that happened behind the scenes. It was an open secret. Everybody knew about it. So Herod married his sister-in-law who was weirdly named Herodias. Okay. So John starts calling him out and he's like, you guys know better than this. How can you lead our country? He would preach to the people and he would say, you know, if you want proof just how far we've drifted from God, just look at the people in charge for goodness sake, man. They're like stabbing their own family in the back and doing things that are contrary to the laws of God and men. And of course, because John is so popular, everybody's being exposed to these messages about how the leaders are, are you know, evil and, and need to repent and change and all that. So Herod and Herodias decide the only thing that they can do is to arrest John, have him thrown in prison so he can no longer preach publicly about them. This is where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter number 11. John is sitting in prison because he's been effective at serving God. He's sitting in prison because the people in charge didn't like the things that he had to say. Now, I want you to consider John's situation for just a moment, okay? All the things that I just shared with you, he is born into the holy family, okay? He was ordained as a prophet before he was ever born. He had one of the most successful prophetic ministries in Israel's entire history. In, in fact, 
in Matthew chapter number 11, verse 11. So this is the same passage that we just read just a few verses later. Look at what Jesus has to say. Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty solid endorsement. I'm not going to lie. Like the Messiah says, you know what? Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Caesar, greater than anybody you could possibly name, John the Baptist is at the top of the list. And yet, here he sits in jail. I mean, if he's so amazing and he's so important to Jesus' ministry and God's plans here on earth, then what is he doing in a Roman prison? I guess like it's not surprising then that he would start to have doubts. He would start to have fears and questions about whether or not he had done the right things or he had made a mistake or he had been fooled. Like what kind of idiot believes that your first cousin is the son of God? John must have had all sorts of doubts. He must have had all kinds of disillusionment over his current set of circumstances. Like how many of you guys know first century prisons were not like 21st century prisons. This was a bad place to be, you guys. There were no creature comforts, no three hots in a cot, okay? No exercise yard, no cable TV privileges. This was a terrible, terrible place to be. And here John, the greatest prophet who's ever lived, according to Jesus, sits rotting in a dungeon cell. John doesn't know it, but these are actually the final days of his life. Three or four weeks from now, from Matthew 11, Herod and Herodias are going to decide we can't ever let this guy out of jail. So they have him beheaded and he dies. So in the middle of like the end, in the middle of horrible circumstances that nobody would have predicted and certainly nobody would say John deserves. I mean, like if John deserves anything, he deserves like a crown. He deserves like celebration, right? Here he sits wondering if he's made a terrible mistake. Wondering if he's gotten it wrong. Wondering if he hasn't misplaced his faith and devoted his life to something that he's going to end up regretting. In the final days, with his faith on the verge of collapsing, he sends a message to Jesus and he says, I got to know, are you really the Messiah or have I made a terrible mistake? Now, it's kind of weird for me to say this, okay? But I actually find John's crisis of faith really encouraging. (laughs) Because it serves as this very needed reminder that even the strongest believers have seasons of doubt. Listen, if somebody with John the Baptist's pedigree and experience gets to the point where he questions his faith in Jesus, wonders if it's even worth it, is afraid that he might have sacrificed his life to something that in the end he he will regret. If John the Baptist of all people is going to get to that moment, it ought not to surprise me if I ever find myself in one of those seasons. We tend to think that people who have doubts and fears, people who consider walking away from their faith, that people who are constantly asking questions, we tend to think that they're weak. We tend to think that they're troublemakers. We tend to think that their hearts are far from God, but that's not true. Time and time again, the heroes of the faith, the paragons of following Christ are the people who are struggling they're asking hard questions. They're in seasons of doubt and confusion. 
God doesn't write them off, and we shouldn't write them off either. I've tried to hammer this point home each week of the series because I believe it just needs to be said, and it needs to to be said again and again and again. Doubts and questions are not evidence of bad faith. I think they're evidence of real faith. If you don't have doubts and questions, I'm not sure you're really engaging with your faith. You're not actually considering the implications and working through things. You're just kind of swallowing hook, line, and sink or whatever I taught you, whatever your grandma taught you, whatever your teachers might have taught you. Doubts and questions are evidence of an alive faith that is trying to understand. And John is expressing his doubts, his fears, his anxieties, and his questions. You're not weak or a failure because you're struggling. You simply need help. It's not a matter of whether you will have seasons like that. You will. It's instead how you handle those seasons. What do I do in those times where I'm disillusioned and I'm tempted to just walk away from it all? How do I handle those times in my life? That will determine whether or not you keep your faith as you question it or you end up losing it in the process. See, when John was in the middle of one of these spiritual storms, his deepest, darkest days, I want you to catch this. He didn't hide that fact. He acknowledged it. He didn't pretend like everything was okay. He didn't process it all internally and privately. Instead, he welcomed other people and God himself into the middle of his confusion. You know, John didn't sit in the prison cell and think to himself, okay, well, I'm really struggling. I'm not sure if he's the Messiah. And so I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to keep thinking and I'm going to keep praying and I'm going to, hopefully I'll, I'll come to an answer. God will give it to me. Somehow or another, I'll come to some sort of conclusion here. He didn't do that. Instead, he was honest. And he said, I can't do this on my own anymore. If I have to keep going on my own, I'm not going to make it. I need help. I need somebody to show up and give me answers, give me encouragement, give me love. Let me know that I am not all alone in all of this. John didn't process it privately. He welcomed his own followers into his moments of confusion and Jesus as well. The the principle is this. In hard times, we can't merely wait for help. We have to seek help. You can't just wait and hope that maybe things are going to get better. When you're in a a deep, dark depression, when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, when you feel completely lonely and isolated and nobody is there for you, it can be tempting, particularly as believers. We, we kind of want to baptize things. And so we're like, you know what? I, I just, I'm going to have faith and I'm going to be patient and I'm going to trust that God is going to drop what I need out of heaven into my lap. You know what I mean? And John could have done that. He could have just sat in the prison and waited and said, okay, I don't have answers. I feel isolated and alone. I'm afraid that I've wasted my life or made a terrible mistake. I could just wait here and hope that God gives me encouragement. I don't know. You could send an angel or somebody. I don't know. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he reached out. He didn't merely wait for help. He sought help. He was honest about what he was feeling. Like you have to imagine, I, I don't know, if, if I were going through one of these seasons like uh, John the Baptist was going through, I might be a little scared to tell you guys about the, the real doubts and fears and questions I have. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to hurt their faith. And, and I know they look at me as like the pastor. I'm the guy that's supposed to have all the answers. And if they hear that I'm struggling or doubting or fearing or regretting or whatever, then what's that going to do to them? So you know what? I'm just going to keep it to myself. Now, listen, you're not that much different. 
You're like, yeah, I don't want them to know that I struggle at the level I do because I don't want them to think less of me or I don't want to hurt anybody else. They, they don't need to carry this burden. This is my burden to carry. John the Baptist could have sat in prison by himself doing that. He could have said, oh, I don't want to bother my followers. I don't want to ruin their faith. I don't want to give them the impression that maybe they've made a terrible mistake. He doesn't leave them on their own and he doesn't process it all privately. He invites them in. He says, guys, I need help. I need you to go to Jesus and ask him, are you really the Messiah or have we all made a terrible mistake? He invites them in. And notice he also invites Jesus in as well. He doesn't hide and pretend. He's not like, oh, Jesus can't know that I'm doubting him. I I wouldn't want him to know that. It's like God already knows what we're feeling anyway, folks. Why are we like, oh, I can't let God know that I'm feeling this right now. I got to hide it. He knows better than you do what you're already feeling. So rather than hiding it, rather than processing it privately, we need to be honest. We need to admit where we're struggling. We need to seek help from God, from the people that are around us. Far too often, Christians will wait weeks or months or years before they reach out. And and it's such a tragedy when we do that, when we isolate ourselves, we say, oh, I don't want to be a bother, or I I don't know if they're going to be helpful or not. I don't even know what I need, so I'm just going to hold on to this and, and try to get through it myself. When you do it that way, it's a tragedy because A, you end up suffering for a lot longer than you need to. If you would be honest and if you would reach out and seek help, you might actually get your breakthrough a whole lot earlier than trying to do it all by yourself. So you suffer longer than you need to, and you probably end up digging yourself further into a pit than you would have been if you had sought some help from others earlier. In hard times, we can't just wait for help. We've got to seek for help. This, tr- this principle is true in every area of our life. This is certainly true spiritually. Don't just struggle. Don't just sit there and wait and hope that somehow the answer is magically going to drop into your lap. No, seek help. If you have questions, get answers. If you're struggling, talk to somebody about it. It's true spiritually, but the same principle is true relationally. It's true physically. It's true financially. When we need need help, we have to seek it. If you hope to find it, you can't merely sit and wait. You've got to say, hey, here I am. I need help. Another reason that this is really dangerous, um, this, this like, oh, okay, I'll just sit and wait and hope everything's okay. Another reason that's really dangerous is that often it can, it can lead to bitterness and resentment when it doesn't need to, right? So like it can be a frustration for sure. And listen, um, people are not perfect. The church's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And so like if you sit and you wait, you, you might start to think to yourself like, okay, well, where is God? Why is he not showing up right now? Because I'm honest, I'm open. I'm, I'm like, God, here's what I need. And so I want you to provide it. Where is he? Why isn't he coming through for me right now? Or you think to yourself, like, where are the other people in my life that are supposed to be here for me? They're not around. And what can happen if you're not careful, if you just have this, like, I'm going to sit and wait for help instead of trying to seek help, you can kind of sit for so long that if help doesn't come as quickly as you hope that it would, the enemy uses that as an opportunity to say, well, you know why help's not coming? Because God's forgotten you. You're on your own here. This is proof. You've been waiting for weeks and he still hasn't shown up. Why, hasn't, uh, why haven't your friends been around? Well, because they don't really love you. There's something wrong with you, actually. Everybody else seems to be just fine with the relationship. You're the problem. So you're not going to have those kind of friendships. You just need to resign yourself to that sort of thing, right? The, the enemy will start to whisper these things into our ears. And, and if we're, listen, if you're sitting in a dungeon in your own mind for long enough, and those are the only voices that you're really hearing, it won't be too long before you start to believe them on some level. 
And so you will end up blaming God, blaming them when the answer is as simple as saying, I need help. I'm just being honest today. I need somebody to show up and to help me. I believe that our church is full of people that want to help you in whatever burdens you might be carrying. But you know, we can't help if we don't know what the burdens are. If you're struggling, but you never tell somebody you're struggling, then how is anybody going to know that you're struggling in order to help? It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation for sure uh, to be in. Imagine for a moment that you, you, you feel lonely, right? To illustrate this point, imagine for a moment that you feel lonely and you want friendships and connections in the church. And so you say, God, I'm lonely and I know I need healthy community. And so I am open to having it. Please send me a friend. I'm ready. I'm waiting. Before I walk out the door, somebody's going to catch me. I just believe it, God. You're going to send somebody to catch me in the lobby, and they're going to ask me my name, and then we're going to hit it off, and we're going to be besties forever because they reach out to me. Huh? Oh, God, somebody's going to text me. I just, I'm asking you. Somebody's got to show up. Somebody's got to intervene. Somebody's got to present themselves to me so that I'm no longer lonely. And listen, God can and he does do that at times, but also we have to ask, like, if I'm lonely, am I seeking friendships? If I have questions, am I pursuing answers? If I'm struggling, am I looking for help? Or am I merely sitting and waiting and hoping something's going to change? Very rarely does it change in that way. John didn't let himself sit and wonder and wait and fester any longer. He said, I need help. And he sought it through uh, sending his friends to Jesus. We realize this is true like in other areas of our life. We know this is true. We could take it out of the, the realms of like maybe relationships or spiritual answers or something like that. Um, imagine for just a moment, uh, a person who is really struggling with their weight, okay? And they're like, God, I know I need to get into better shape. And so uh, I'm gonna pray about this because praying about it's the right thing to do, right? You pray about everything. And so you pray and, and your prayer goes something like this. God, I know that you are sovereign over everything, including my body. You made me, and I know that you love me, and you want me to be healthy. And God, I know that nothing is too powerful for you. You can literally do anything. You can move mountains, God. You see my beer belly today is like a mountain. <laughs> and so, God, I'm just praying by faith. I trust you. I believe you can do it, God. That because my faith is sincere, because I trust you, that God, at one point in the not-too-distant future, I don't even care how long it takes, God. I'm patient. Like a, a month. No big deal. <laughs> That one day I'm just going to look down and boom, I'm going to have a six pack. God, I believe you can do it. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be in shape. I'm going to have all the muscles I've always wanted. God, uh, you're powerful and I trust you. And so I'm giving this problem to you and I'm going to wait for you to make it happen. In Jesus name. Amen. I wish. If somebody prayed that way, we would be like, that's not how that works. Okay. If you want to get in shape, then you got to make some changes. You got to put in some work. You can't merely pray God show up and change things like that and expect him to do it. If that's true with our physical bodies, why wouldn't it also be true of our relationships with other people? Why wouldn't it also be true of our finances? 
Why wouldn't it also be true of our spiritual connection with God? We tend to think that prayer is the final answer and prayer is a component of what we need to do. Certainly it is. But very often we've got to seek help. We've got to admit and acknowledge we can't do it on our own anymore. And we need some people that are going to help us to make some changes. Okay. Now, after um, John sends his message to Jesus, verse number two, sends his disciples, ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah or uh, should we be looking for somebody else? I would expect in the next verse, Jesus to say, oh my gosh, my cousin John is in prison. And he's struggling. He's in such a depression that he doubts my identity as God's son. He doubts his ministry and everything we've been doing together for the last several years. He needs me. And I would expect Jesus to like drop everything and run to his cousin, John, and provide any bit of comfort and encouragement and help that he possibly can. I mean, it's not like Jesus couldn't do that. Do you realize in, in Matthew chapter number 10, the, the chapter just before this, Jesus had called his 12 disciples together and he said, all right, guys, I'm going to send you out on a short-term mission trip. I'm going to divide you up into, into pairs and you're going to go out to all these little villages and you're going to go preach and work miracles in my name. And so he gives them those instructions. He sends them out and Jesus is solo when John's disciples show up and say, hey, he's in jail. He's freaking out. He needs you right now. Jesus is solo. He, he's not responsible for the disciples in this moment. He could totally drop everything if he wanted to. Not only that, but the prison that John was, uh, was held at and eventually beheaded at, still there in Israel, you can go to it today. It was literally just across the Sea of Galilee. It's like across the lake. It's not that far. Multiple times in Jesus' life, he sailed back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. So it's not like Jesus didn't know where it was. It's not like it was too far or too hard to get to. If Jesus wanted to in the moment, he could have been right there at John's side. But he doesn't show up. Instead, he sends back John's disciples with the message to give to their master. I struggle with this, to, to be honest with you guys. I really, really struggle with this. Like, I don't, does, does Jesus not care? This is his family member that's in jail. Is John's suffering not important enough for Jesus to take a day and to go over there and to visit? Is Jesus just kind of like saying, dude, suck it up, man. Like, you'll be all right. You'll go to heaven when you die anyway. I mean, like, why does Jesus seem kind of callous and uncaring here when his own cousin, flesh and blood, is in jail? I really wrestle with this. I wonder if John the Baptist didn't wrestle with this too when Jesus didn't come walking back in, but he just sent a message with these other disciples. I don't fully have answers on this, but I do believe Jesus' response here is another good reminder that God's preferred way of ministering to his people is through his people. God's preferred way, the way that he chooses to do it for one reason or another is through other people. When his people are struggling and suffering, God tends to use his people to meet their needs in the moment. You understand that Jesus could have gone 
to visit John, but he didn't. He chose to use the intermediaries, the disciples, the people to do it. You know that God could in all of his sovereignty from where he's at in heaven, snap his fingers and fix whatever problems he wants to here on earth. You realize that, right? He doesn't need me to do anything for him. If God wants to preach a sermon on Matthew 11, he could show up here and do it himself much better than I could. And yet, for whatever reason, his preferred way of ministering to his people is always through his people. God uses people to meet others' needs, to accomplish his plans and purposes. God always involves us in helping to solve other people's problems. And the, the, the reverse is true as well. God will use you to help solve our problems. It's this beautiful way that God has designed community so that we need one another. He could do it without us, but he almost never does. I wonder how often we're praying in a church service like this for a particular solution. God, you know what I need, and I'm praying you drop it into my lap. And God's like, the solution is two rows away from you right now. But you don't know because you won't be honest. You don't know because you won't reach out. You keep waiting for me to give you the solution. I've given you the solution, but you're missing it. Wonder how often we're like, God, I'm lonely or I need real community. And he's like, you signed up for a connect group, but you didn't go. What do you want me to do for you? At some point, we have to own the fact that solutions we're often seeking are within the people around us. God won't just magically drop it out of heaven. We're going to find it in and amongst one another. And we're going to be the part of somebody else's solution as well. If you need the ultimate proof of all of this, okay, this is nowhere more true than it is with Christ himself. You realize God in heaven could have looked down and saw us in all of our sin. He could have snapped his fingers, could have waved his arms. He could have spoke a few magic words and all of our sin could have been wiped away just like that. He, he could have redeemed and reconciled all of creation in an instant from heaven, but he didn't do it that way. In fact, God believes so fully in the principle of people ministering to other people that rather than working remotely, he took on flesh in the person of Jesus. He became embodied and incarnate so that we would see that he will work through other people to accomplish his means. This is crazy when you think about it. God is committed to community. We have to be committed to community as well because so much of the answers and help and hope that we're seeking is found in and amongst his people. I'm not taking anything away from God. He is still the king and sovereign. He's the ultimate source of everything. But understand what I'm saying. His preferred way of ministering to his people is through his people. That's why I'm so glad that you're here for Groupling Sunday. Like it's an amazing time to show up to church. I talked to three people today and it was their first Sunday ever. And I'm like, yes, this is the best Sunday you could have come because you have the opportunity to connect with healthy spiritual community. It's there and it's available. We tell you all the time, you can't be the best version of yourself by yourself. You need other people just like we need other people. That's why we're called Connect Church for goodness sake. 
So today, when we leave and you have an opportunity to sign up for a group, please sign up. Take advantage of the community. If you are struggling in any way, shape, or form, there is probably a group out there that can at least help to meet your needs. We may not be able to meet your needs fully, but we can help. Okay, final thing. I got to wrap up. Final thing here that we see from this episode in John the Baptist's life is that Jesus calls us to look beyond our immediate circumstances. He calls us to look beyond what our immediate circumstances might show us. See, John's current situation was causing him to question and to doubt. He was struggling because all he could see was like the terrible circumstances he found himself in. And John's not unique in this. I do this, you do this. When we go through hard times, whether it's like unfortunate circumstances or we're really struggling in our spirit or whatever it might be, we have this tendency to look inward. We look down and Jesus is telling John, would you look up? When when John says to Jesus or he sends a message to his friends and he says, uh, are you really the Messiah? Notice that Jesus doesn't give him like really an answer. He doesn't give him an explanation. He doesn't give him an argument. He, he doesn't say like, well, let me prove to you that I am the Messiah by all of these Old Testament prophecies that I fulfilled. He could have done that. Instead, he says, no, no, no. John, I want you for just, I know that you're going through it right now. But could you do this? Could you just look up, lift your eyes for a moment and see all the wonderful things that God is still doing all around you? I'm not minimizing what you're doing. What I'm about to say is not going to take you out of a prison. It's not even going to, to change where your life is headed here in this moment. But if you were to just lift your eyes, if you were to look beyond yourself, if you could see beyond the immediate circumstances in front of you, you might find encouragement. You might find that God is at work in ways that you hadn't seen or noticed prior to this, would you look beyond your immediate circumstances and take comfort in what God is doing? Not only is it cool in that way, let's not forget that all of these things that Jesus highlights here, right? The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the um, lepers are healed, the good news is preached to the poor and the oppressed. All of these things are made possible by the fact that John the Baptist had been preparing the way. John the Baptist has a role, a part, a share in every one of these blessings that Jesus is enumerating right now. And so he's calling John, John, I know it's tough, but don't get too hung up on what's immediately going on around you. Look at the greater picture. Look at the bigger things that God is doing and find some encouragement and comfort in that. His final words here in verse number six, I think are a great way to close out this particular series. In verse number six, Jesus says, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Notice he doesn't say, God will bless those who never doubt. God will bless those who never go through a prolonged uh, season of disillusionment. God blesses those who stay perfect and never say or do the wrong thing. God blesses those who are always on the right side of the fence. No, he says, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. The blessing is in going through these seasons, having these questions, being honest with our doubts and anxieties, letting God and other people help us to get through them. That is the blessing if we can endure these seasons and not fall away because of Christ. God, I just pray that you strengthen our faith today. 
whoever might be in one of these seasons right now, I pray God that you would carry them through, help them to get to the other side, a better, healthier space relationally and spiritually, emotionally, uh, God, in every other way so that Lord, they can have a powerful testimony of how you've been there for them. Just like you were there for John, you were there for Elijah in the days he struggled, Peter, God, um, so many heroes of our faith have gone through this before. So I pray that we would find comfort, encouragement, and help during these seasons. We offer ourselves to you. God, you are good and worthy of our worship. And so we just pray that you'd meet us here and help us in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, before I step off stage, we have an, an opportunity, like a very real and tangible opportunity as a church to, to be the church, to be community, uh, to, to a family in our congregation that is just struggling desperately right now. Uh, you, you may have heard, you may not, that the Igalo family, Fervent and his wife, Dorcas, very uh, unexpectedly and tragically lost their four-year-old son, Micah, this week. And... Um, Amber and I were with him yesterday and we were um, planning the memorial and sharing memories and, you know, uh, just trying to encourage one another. And I was talking to uh, Fervent's sister who's uh, in for the memorial service. And she said, you know, this, this family is very strong and they, they know God is with them. And, you know, they're, they're trying to keep their faith and things like that. But she said, you know, I worry about them long term. Uh, what they need is people around them who are going to care for them now, of course, when it's all fresh and, and difficult, but also in the the weeks and the months to come. And, and I told her that we would do our very best as a church to be the, the community that they need us to be. And so there are three ways that I'm going to ask you to consider helping this family. You, you may know them. You may recognize the name. You may know them from the lobby or from kids ministry or whatever, or you may have never heard of them before. It doesn't really matter. Every single one of us can pray for this family during this season. If it were your son, if it were your family member, you would want the church praying as passionately as they could. So would you just join me in praying for this family and the memorial service that's going to be happening on Thursday? Second thing is um, our church has set up a meal train for the family so that they don't have to worry about food for the next uh, little while. Like there's no reason that they should give any thought to who's going to cook or what are we going to order or anything for the next couple of weeks at least. So check our social media channels right now. Um, there's a link on there. Click it. You can just order skip and have it sent right to their door. And I promise you that'll be a real blessing to them. Last thing is this. If you know the family personally, maybe you, you knew them, you were connected with them through the church, or you know them, you know, through uh, friend circles outside of the church, would you reach out to them? I know in moments like this, you're like, what, what could I possibly say? And they probably don't want to be bothered by everybody. Can I just say that your messages of encouragement and support will mean more to them than you realize. You don't have to be fancy with your words. You don't have to say anything that's going to change, you know, their outlook. All you need to do is say, hey, I'm so sorry about what's happened. I want you to know I grieve with you. I love you. And I'm praying for you as is the rest of the church. If you would do that, that would go a long way to helping them experience God's love in peace during this very, very difficult season. God, I lift the Agalo family to you. I can't even imagine 
but I know that you are present with them. God, you're providing your peace to them. And God, I'm just praying that our church would be uh, the, the, the group and community that they need us to be. So help us to pray for them in the coming weeks. Help us to provide meals and other sources of encouragement. And God, um, as we have opportunity to just let them know that they're loved and that God, their church family stands behind them. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility. So I pray that you would help us to steward it well, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen.